welcome to this episode of Consider It Blacklit. I am Kim, your host. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, Consider It Blacklit highlights films, television programs, and stage plays that feature African-Americans up front and behind the scenes. We also discuss social issues as it relates to some of these programs and how they may or may not impact our community. So thank you for tuning in and we hope you continue to tune in each week. Today, it is my pleasure to highlight the first Broadway show that appears after the pandemic shutdown, Passover. Passover highlights two African-American young men who dream of life beyond the corner that they feel trapped on. And it is my pleasure to have the playwright of Passover, Antoinette Chinoya Wandu. Welcome, Antoinette. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. Great, great, great. I'm so excited. So tell our audience a little bit about your background and what led you to playwriting. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, around the TV and film industry, but I personally didn't really know myself as a storyteller until uh, my senior year of college when I took a playwriting class with Adrian Kennedy. Adrian Kennedy is one of the seminal Black playwrights from the Black arts movement in New York City. Her play Funny House of a Negro is one of my favorites. And so I was in this class with her and I was just smitten by theater. I think, you know, I grew up in the church. Uh, someone so theatricality and storytelling and nor narrative are of course a part of my life, but I never thought of it as a career. When I went to college, I, you know, I thought I was gonna be a doctor, lawyer, business, finance, academics, something. But there was just this passion and this, this love and this drive for storytelling. And I, over the next several years, just sort of stumbled around until I found myself in a um, playwriting class. And I was like, oh, you know, once you start learning the craft and, and, oh no, there are people who sit down and write stories this way, this, you know, not a lot of people do it, but this can be a job, this can be a career. It just fit so perfectly with the person that I already knew I was. And it was the first time that I felt like, oh, I don't have to fit myself into a peg. All of me can show up for this weird career called playwriting. And I can, you know, I can try to make something of it. And you absolutely did. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. When did you learn that Passover would be the first Broadway show after the pandemic shut down? And how did that make you feel? That's a big deal. It is a big deal. You know, Kim, it was so crazy. It happened so quickly, but also so perfectly. I did not get my second vaccine personally until April Fool's Day, which is such a crazy day to remember. So I got my first vaccine, obviously, uh, two weeks before that. And around that same time, Matt Ross and I were having conversations. Now he and I had had one conversation a year before February, the end of February, 2020, when he was like, I saw your play at Lincoln Center. I think you can go to Broadway. Then we all know what happened next. So here it comes 13, 14 months later, he's calling me and he's like, look, a vaccine exists. Do we want to open up these conversations again? And then having a conversation with Drew Jameson that owns the theater, the August Wilson Theater, and they were like, this is the time we have. If you use the slot that we have, it would mean you would go first. And I, uh, to be perfectly honest, I was like, no, thank you. I want to go. I was like, I want to go two weeks <laughs> after Hamilton. That's what I told them in the first meeting. I said, I want to go two weeks. This, that. I was like, that's too much. 
it's going to be my first time on Broadway, plus the pandemic, plus racial reckoning, plus what my play is about. And then to be perfectly honest with you, it was a combination of talking to my team, talking to my family, prayer, my own change of heart once I was vaccinated myself talking to Matt Ross, meeting uh, Blythe Adamson at uh, Infectious Economics. And she is an, the epidemiologist who created the NBA bubble and who works with Dave Iger at Disney. And she is working with us paid on our staff at Passover Broadway. So once I knew, okay, this scientist is telling me I can make your show safe. This producer is telling me your show is nimble. It's small, it only has three actors. So we can really do something beautiful here and then the theater, you know, when God opens a door, you can't say, well, no, not this door. I want another door. So it wasn't, I wasn't going for first, but if that's, if that's the door that's open, then I say, okay, I'm going to walk through. Right. Exactly. What's for you is for you. Listen. You know, if God puts it in your path, listen, yeah. even if I do confess, you know, I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> I was like, this is too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> All around. But now that we are open, when I say my DMs are flooded, flooded, this is my first Broadway show. Thank you for the access code so you can make it affordable. Oh my goodness, of all the shows that could come back, a show with this heart and a show with this story is the perfect first show back. So it's mm -hmm. just, you know, I, I'm literally just grateful. Yeah, yeah. Grateful. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So I went to the opening, the first on August 4th at the preview. Yes. And when you entered the theater, the energy, people just gave you a standing yes. ovation. I mean, they took the roof off the theater. How did yes. that make you feel? I was so humbled. You know, I'm an introvert. You have to think about it like this. My job, my career, my chosen profession is to sit alone and think up stories in my head. So even just being around people, especially after all of this, just being in a theater with people at all was already deeply emotional. And I felt the trust and I felt the love and I, you can feel palpably people saying, we're gonna invest in this and we're gonna hope. And then on top of that, to have all of those people recognize me for a work that I have been toiling at. I say to people in the press 2015, but I just went back and opened up my my old files, my first file for this play was 2013. Wow. You know what I mean? It was a 10 minute play first. I wrote it in 2013 and then in 2015, I turned it into a full length play. Wow. So to have people that I don't know in this historic moment, recognizing that work, that's validation. You know what I mean? I don't remember the verse, but I know it says, you know, you can cry your tears, but joy comes in the morning. And I'm like, okay, well, I am so grateful that I held on and believe there are many, 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 many days that I was like, no, I'm done with this. This is, yeah. this is a, this is ridiculous. Girl, you need to go get a job. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like you, you are doing what you're sitting in a room, writing a play. Nobody knows you're writing it. Nobody's paying, you know, this isn't Hollywood. It's not like I have an advance. Nobody's mm -hmm. paying me to write this. Nobody knows what I'm doing. You know, and some days you feel crazy, literally mm -hmm. crazy. Yep, so but that it all moment is just validation. It's just, wow, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So now when I move forward, oh, I can move forward in faith. What was it about that play, Waiting for Godot, that inspired you to write Passover? 
Well, okay, so Waiting for Godot is uh, a play from the late 1950s by an Irish writer named Samuel Beckett. And in the 1950s, after World War II, you know, when America was very wealthy, that Mad Men time, here comes this play about these two homeless vagrants who are waiting for a man named Godot. We never see the man. And they just stand around basically having these absurdist kind of like Charlie Chaplin, uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy conversations. And at the end of act one, a little boy comes and says, yeah, Godot says he'll come tomorrow, but just wait here. And they're like, okay, this is terrible. And then at the end of act two, the same thing happens. And it's just this existential bleakness that I have to confess, I fell in love with when I first saw it. But that play was playing in 2013. It was Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart on Broadway. And I was sitting there and I was like, wow, this, you know, I, I had studied existentialism in college, blah, blah, blah. I know about this. And I was like, you know, for white culture in the late 50s, this was the worst. And that when this play came, it blew people's minds. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is the worst it could have gotten with that play. But I was like, wow, those, those two men get to be old. Mm -hmm. If they were black, they wouldn't even be old. But I'm like that, they don't even, they don't, yes, they know hardship and there's hardship for those two vagrants in that play, of course. But I was wow. like, oh, what privilege that even at their worst, they get to be old men. Wow, that's deep, that's definitely. Deep. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Deep. So this version is a rewrite of some previous versions. Talk to yes. us about the evolution of the script and why did you feel it was necessary to change some aspects of it? Absolutely. So the play premiered in Chicago at Steppenwolf Theater in 2017. And then Spike, Uncle Spike, uh, read the script in 2018 and he filmed it for Amazon Prime. So that version is still available on Amazon Prime. And then I changed the ending again for Lincoln Center. And essentially the way I think about it, I'm like, look, theater is a living organism. And I'm speaking to the people right now about right now. I hate when I go to see something at the theater and I'm like, oh, this was a topic play from two years ago. You know mm. what I mean? And it feels a little bit stale. So for the, the uh, Chicago ending and the Amazon Prime ending uh, and what we did in New York in 2018 at Lincoln Center, that ending did end with a lynching. The main character, Moses, was murdered by the character, uh, Mr., who was the white man who, so on the second day, just like Godot, it's two days, but on the second day he comes back and he does kill Moses. And at the time, the play was an indictment to white America that I thought they, you know, these theater going upper middle class people needed to see because we were in the Trump administration. And after the pandemic and after everything that happened personally in my life, once Broadway became a possibility, I was like, you know, how interesting. My dreams are coming true, but the version of the play does not fit anymore. I do not want to invite anyone, Black, white, Asian, Latino, I don't want to invite anyone into a theater when we have not sat next to each other. And you might have a mask on and you might not even want to be in the theater. And then you have to watch after George Floyd after Breonna Taylor, you know what I mean? I started writing this with Trayvon, thinking, okay, maybe if I write something now, maybe, 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 maybe. And I'm not saying that I regret those choices. Many audiences did see those plays and feel touched, but at a certain point, you have to say enough is enough. Right, right. And I need to focus on my own joy. What do mm -hmm. I want to see when I'm sitting in the theater? Mm -hmm. What do I need? 
Yeah, because we've been traumatized. Listen, and I do believe on a certain level now that I am embracing my healing once we got a new president, not that he's perfect, but he's better than what we had. <laughs> Amen. Listen, once we got a new president, once I got that vaccine, and quite frankly, once I got out of the marital situation that I stepped away from, the clouds parted and I looked at my play and I could see an ending where this young man lived. Yeah. And yeah. it's beautiful. My goodness, it's beautiful. That's it's beautiful. It's, it's you know what beautiful. I mean? It's, it's, it's my career and it's work 100%. But this is also spirit work. Mm-hmm. I can't write a story, whether it's for Hollywood, for TV, for the stage. I can't write it unless I believe it. Hmm. And some part of my spirit was so low and so heavy that I could not see my own characters any other way but dead. And now it's like, okay, well, they're alive and so am I. (laughs) There's hope in a promised land. Listen. Yeah. So in the play, uh, you use the language of our youth, which includes the N-word a lot. Why did you feel it was important to include this? Well, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not me on a soapbox at all. Everything that sticks, when I'm writing a play, especially for as long as I've been writing this, if it's in the play, it's organic, it's true to the experience. And while I was writing this play, I was also teaching, I was an adjunct, a full-time adjunct, my word, at Borough of Manhattan Community College. So I would go to work during the day, I'm teaching public speaking. Each class, I had a full slate of six classes Each class, I have 39 students, young black and brown Latino people. And I'm teaching them how to speak, how to use their voice. Now, every time one of my young black men, not every time, but many times when they got up to speak, I would have to decide, do I dock them for using authentic language or do I listen to the message versus the rules, the rules, the rules? Mm -hmm. And if I go to a young kid who, Miss, I'm shy, I don't really wanna speak. And I work on that kid, work, work, work. Okay, now you're standing up and speaking. And then I'm gonna come back to him and say, oh, but you know, five points off. Cause the language, the language. No, no, no. I'm not trying to kill this young man's spirit. Mm-hmm. I, so I had a rule in my class, which was like no foul language about other people. It's respect about your classmates, respect to yourself, respect to me. But the language you use to talk about your lives is yours. Mm-hmm. And so once I made that change at work, when I would go home and write, my characters would begin to sound like these young men that I had been encouraging to speak mm-hmm. all day. Mm-hmm. So it was, I, I struggled very hard with that choice because, you know, look, I grew up in the church mm-hmm. and there was definitely that voice in my head saying, don't you dare talk about Moses and the promised land and use that language. Those two, you know, mm-hmm. that's the profane mm-hmm. and that's the sacred. Right, right. But then I'm like, okay, if Moses, if that Bible story happened today, you're telling me these young kids wouldn't be front and center in the children of Israel? Right. right. In the promised land? You t- like, right. come on. Wow. Wow. That's who they are. Mm-hmm. So there it is. All right. I hear you. I hear you. So um, since you first did the play and to now, We've seen George Floyd killed Mm -hmm. on videotape. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think, what statement do you think your play play makes now that we're in this current environment of police aggression? 
Because your play addresses it directly. My play does address police aggression actively. Uh, there is one actor, his name is Gabe Ebert. He's a seven-time Broadway veteran and a Tony Award winner. And he plays the two white characters, Ossifer, who is the police officer, and he plays Mr., who's the genteel man who, you know, is good and then not so good. And with, the, uh, with, with those two characters, you get a choice at the end of the play. The character that you think is evil chooses to let that evil go and to, and to be healed of that evil. And the character who comes out is not so evil chooses to hold on to the power and the evil that he has. So for me, I don't care wh what clothes you wear. I don't care what job you have. If you want to go into the promised land, which I am creating an Afrofuturist promised land of Black liberation, is Black people, all Black people, happy in the promised land. Now, at the end of the play, we do see one of those white characters also mm -hmm. go into the promised land. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, what's that? What's happening there? How come he gets to go? Mm -hmm. I say, if you, if you divest yourself of the evil of this world, then the promised land is for you. I'm not going to make the mistake. I'm not going to recreate the sins of whiteness mm -hmm. in the new world. If I'm creating the new world, I can't bring racism with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't even really bring race with me. Mm -hmm. I hear you. You're a person and I'm a person. Now, people like that, there, there is a character who chooses not to go in. Yes, of course, I'm not gonna be naive. Yes, there are many people who choose not to go in and we have to have understanding and discernment who those people are. But yeah. regardless of what color you are, if you treat me like a human five-fifths, I'm gonna treat you like a human five-fifths. Right, and that's what and it's about. That's what it's about. And let's make the new world together. One thing I liked when I went to see the play that there was so much diversity into the, in the audience. Yeah. Um, what, do you think more people of color will come to Broadway now that plays like yours and other plays of color are mm -hmm. there? Well, you know, this is a historic season. <laughs> I am one of seven black playwrights presenting work on Broadway this fall. We have Chicken and Biscuits coming right after us with the excellent Norm Lewis. Uh, Thoughts of a Colored Man. I don't think I could do them all. The Alice Childress play. We have a Dominique Morisot play. <laughs> Lynn Nottage's play. Is that everybody? Is that all of them? Did I get all of them? I don't know. But we'll find. If you anyway, miss one, we'll, we'll you, list right, it. Right, right, right. We'll Google them. We'll Google <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. on one hand, it's, it's beautiful. It's, look, come to Broadway. Stay alert. These stories are happening. And it's beautiful. So I... I embrace it. I embrace the moment. Of course, I'm, I still want to be vigilant. I don't want to let my guard down and say, oh, everything is fixed. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. We know from the 90s, the LA, you know, the LA mm -hmm. film scene in the 90s, John Singleton. We know from the 70s, the Black Arts Movement, they fall in love with us and then real soon they'll fall out of love, out of love with, with us. us. Exactly. Which is why I said to Matt Ross, when he came to me, I said, we will collaborate on this. I will be a writer producer because mm -hmm. And I love Matt Ross and I think, you know, he's a, he's a great guy and I hope that we have a future in working together again, but whether we do or we don't, I need to learn how to produce mm. my work so I can produce black work in the future. Ah, that's so smart. And I'm so glad you did that. So glad you did that. So let's talk about the director, Dania Tamer. Dania you, Tamer. Yes. Yeah. How did you um, hook up with her? So interestingly, Dania Tamer actually, uh, uh, applied for the job to direct the play when it was originally 
presented as a developmental workshop at the Cherry Lane Mentorship Project before Steppenwolf. And you know, we met and I was really impressed with her, but I said, no, thank you. And then later on, she and I got an opportunity to work on another one of my plays, again, at a developmental workshop. It wasn't really being pre presented, but I was writing it. So once I knew Passover was happening, I actually hired another uh, director, a black female director, uh, Liesl Tommy. And Liesl and I were thick as thieves and we were doing the work. Now, as is often the case when you are uh, a professional black woman, the opportunities all come at once. So as it happened, Liesl stepped away from the project to go direct an episode of Queen Sugar mm. with Ava DuVernay. And now fast forward several years and Liesl Tommy is the director of the Respect movie with Jennifer Hudson, which just opened. So congratulations to Liesl and I love her journey, but okay, who's gonna direct my play? So I look back and I'm like, okay, I had interviewed Danya. She knows the play really well. In these intervening months, I've both worked with her and I've seen her work. And I've seen her as a young white woman work on plays about black people and about specifically the deaths of young black men. So in the intervening mm -hmm. time, I've seen her work. Mm -hmm. And quiet as is kept, when I found out that Liesl had stepped away, we had three weeks before first rehearsal. I already had a set and I already had actors. So who am I gonna ask as a director? You need to drop everything in three weeks. You need to accept the cast that we have. You need to accept the set. You need to accept the, that was Donya Tamo. I hear you. Well, she did a great job. Both yes. of you guys did. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah, so let's talk about the actors. They were amazing too. Listen. How did they become um, involved with the project? Well, John Hill has been in the project since the beginning. He is the only Moses I have ever worked with. So, you know, he comes out of Steppenwolf. If you've seen that show Elementary on CBS with Lucy Liu, John Hill plays the, the cop character in that, does excellent work there. He's also been on Broadway uh, a few years ago with the show Superior Donuts. So once I knew that Steppenwolf was gonna do the show, they said, John Hill, because you know, Steppenwolf has, is a theater in Chicago that has an acting company. It's one of the few theaters that still has it. So they were like, okay, in the company, it's gotta be John. You got it, it's gotta be John. And then when once we moved to Lincoln Center in New York, Danya and John and I, that's when we added Gabe Ebert and Namir Smallwood. So where would you like to see Passover go after does this Broadway run? So after Broadway, we have very serious intentions of doing an, uh, a, a domestic tour of some kind. Definitely, I would like to hit Los Angeles, my hometown. I wanna hit Houston. I wanna go back to Chicago, uh, potentially Atlanta, potentially DC. So that's what we're thinking about and talking about. Uh, also, we are talking about the West End because the off-Broadway version, the Lincoln Center version did play in London and then it was shut down because of COVID. So now that we're on Broadway, you know, the, the British version of Broadway would be the West End. So we're talking to producers there. And then after that, you know, it did already play in South Africa. So mm -hmm. it does have an international footprint. Before the pandemic, there were several international productions planned. So now that I've rewritten it, you know, hey, get at All me, right. get at hey. me, whoever wants to, hey, listen, <laughs> the sky's the limit. But you know, it's also interesting. And this is the thing I have to do. I do have to give a shout out also to Spike because when Spike put it on Amazon Prime, mm -hmm. from that day until this, at least once a week, I get DMs from people. I've gotten DMs from favelas in Brazil. I've gotten DMs from Japan. 
Wow. I've gotten DMs from Nigeria. There was a university in Nigeria. People saying, I saw it on Amazon. We're reading the text in our class. Thank you for this. I mean, come on now. That's, yeah. it's wow. incredible. Wow. It's incredible. Wow. The reach. Yeah, that's amazing. So what's next for Antoinette? I have uh, another play. There was actually another play that was, I was supposed to premiere in uh, July of 2020. And unfortunately, obviously I couldn't. So that play is on deck. I'm fixing it up, changing it up. Uh, and you know, hopefully uh, sometime in 2022, that will be ready. And then I am working on two film projects uh, with prominent black creatives that I cannot talk about uh, that I'm very excited about. Well, so, we will you know. we will be looking for that. We thank are you. so happy and I'm so proud of you. I thank mean, you. Kim, thank you. This sister is the first person who is opening a Broadway show after the pandemic. I was so super excited. I was a little surprised, but I was yeah. like, okay, she definitely is awesome if this is happening for her. And you. definitely deserve it because our journeys are never easy. Mm. You know, yes. when you see us on the other side, yes. I know there's a struggle there somewhere Listen. behind. So yes, I am so, so happy for you. And thank, thank you. you for joining me today. Thank and you so every, much for having me. And everyone out there looking at this episode, make sure you go to Broadway and see Passover. Yes. So that's our time for today. Thank Any you. Closing remarks? Um, I do want to say to anybody listening, if you go to my Instagram or if you go to the show page, just Google Passover and Broadway, every single performance from now until the day we close, November 4th, we have set aside 106 premium seats, good seats in the orchestra, front row seats for $39. So if you go to the show website or if you go to my DMs on Instagram, I'm Awandu. A-N-W-A-N-D-U. You can get the access code, $39 tickets. That's how we're keeping it diverse. SeatGeek awesome. has worked with us. We're not going to do that thing where they, oh, the tickets are 100, that, that, you know, no, no, no. $39, 106 seats. So please come out. That's important, making it accessible yes. for our people. Thank yes. you. Thank you so much for that. Well, everyone, that's our time for today. And until next week, consider yourself Blacklit.